0: You ready? Go. Here we go. <laughs> Genesis chapter 10. It's called the Table of Nations. For in Genesis chapter 10, we're given an overview, literally, of how the planet was repopulated after the flood. When Noah and his family stepped off of the ark and God said, Be fruitful and multiply, repeating the same thing that he had said to Adam and Eve early on. He now repeats again, it's time for a fresh start, a new start, and he wants them to begin this repopulating process. And so tonight, what we get to see, and it's fascinating to me, how people begin to branch out, and how those branches actually lead on to a lot of what's happening on the world stage today. So we're going to look at some of those things. Genesis chapter 10 What's exciting about it is it provides an anthropological framework for our entire family tree. I want to give you a quote right now. This is from uh, Morris in the book, The Genesis Record. Uh, a lot of times you guys, different people will ask me, where would you get that information? Where would you pick that up? One of the best resources in studying the book of Genesis that I found is the Genesis Record by Morris. And you can, you can get that at Amazon. You can get it anywhere online bookstores. Uh, they'll have it. It's a great book. Morris says there is no comparable catalog of ancient nations from any other source. It is unparalleled in its antiquity and its comprehensiveness. There is nothing in any other ancient writing discovered by archaeologists which is at all comparable in scope and accuracy to Genesis chapter 10. So what we're about to read, remember, as you study Scripture, this isn't stuff that may have happened, that we hope someday will be proven to have happened. This is what happened. This is handed down from our Father God through the prophets to us in written form, and we can actually see what happened. We can be present after the flood and watch as the world begins to spread back out, people begin to spread out again. Now keep in mind that each one of us are direct descendants of, of Noah. Every one of us in the room here, every human being that walks the face of the planet is a direct descendant of Noah. Everyone. Which also means that we're direct descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, although not necessarily of all three. Some are more descendants of Japheth, some are more descendants of Shem, others descendants of Ham. But we all trace our family tree back to those three sons and through them back to their father. Now one thing that's interesting to me is there is no existence of the people of Cain anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world today. Because even through Noah, we can then trace our lineage back through the line of Seth, and and then from Seth, back to Adam. So you can trace all the way back, but Cain was bypassed. Once the generations of Cain reached a certain point, once they reached the flood, literally after the flood, there were no more generations of Cain. Why is that? Was God just angry with Cain? Well, if you recall, Cain determined that he was going to turn his face away from God. He determined that he was going to hide from God. Now, in your scriptures, you may remember, in fact, flip back real quickly Genesis chapter 4 Genesis chapter 4 verse 14, Cain made this comment. As God begins to lay out his punishment for murdering his brother Abel, Cain says this, chapter 4, verse 14, Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Now, this phrase, from your face I will be hidden, if you look back at the original language and the intent, it's not that God was going to hide his face from Cain, it's that Cain was saying, from your face I'm going to hide myself. I'm not going to be in your face anymore. I am not going to be near you. I am going to hide myself from you. He's rebelling even in his punishment here. And so following the line of Cain all the way down to the flood, by the time the flood hits, Cain's line is wiped out, and there is no more descendant of Cain after that. Well, back to Genesis chapter 10. Noah steps off the ark and the human family tree grows its first three branches actually prior to the flood Shem, Ham, and Japheth and again I'll say again and I will show you this in a few moments tonight every person walking the face of the earth regardless of race traces back to Shem, Ham, or Japheth Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Now, these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. Now, you may recall, just as a reminder, and for those of you who haven't heard this yet, the name Ham means black. It means black in its literal sense. And Ham was the forefather of the Hamitic peoples who settled primarily in the areas of Africa. So keep that in mind as we draw through this because the the lineage, the genealogy as we study it tonight is broken down by Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham, all the Hamitic people, tended to be settling primarily, primarily primarily in Africa. Shem, his name means glory. Now you may recall the Shemitic people or what we would today call the Semitic people. The people of God's glory. We're talking specifically about Jews, but not only Jews. Arabs as well Jews and Arabs are shemitic people Jews and Arabs draw their lineage all the way back to Shem the Jews trace back to Abraham Isaac and Jacob the Arabs trace back to Abraham Ishmael And Esau, and those are some stories we're going to be able to look at in the next few weeks as we draw on into Genesis, how that all broke apart. In fact, I think you're going to find it fascinating, all of the problems that we see in the Middle East today directly relate back to problems that happened with these individuals when they were born and and as they grew up. Family feuds that have continued for generations, for centuries, literally for hundreds, hundreds of years. So the Jews trace back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Arabs trace back to Abraham, Ishmael, and Esau. And another book that I would recommend if you've never read it, it's by Hal Lindsay, and it's called Everlasting Hatred, The Roots of Jihad. And he does a phenomenal job. It's probably one of the best books that I've read. Just in terms of of laying it all out, he goes all the way back to Genesis and he walks through the Arab and Israeli problem all the way up to present day. And he shows where all this comes from and the everlasting enmity that is between the Arab and the Jew. It's a phenomenal book, and it's actually a very easy read. You can read through it really fast. Everlasting Hatred, The Roots of Jihad by Hal Lindsey. So Ham, Black, Shem, Glory, and along comes Japheth, and his name means ruler, but this title wouldn't be realized for many generations. For the people of Japheth, for the most part, moved north and west across eastern and western Europe. But if you know anything about history or may recall this, it reveals that the people on the European continent were barbaric for a long, long period of time. They were not civilized. Civilization, the seed of civilization, was in today what we would see as somewhere a little less civilized than ourselves, the Middle East. And for long periods of time, Africa and the Middle East were much more civilized than Europe was. Europe was barbaric. But Japheth's people, again, they began to spread out, and the European continent was barbaric for ages, until, until people on the European continent, the people of Japheth, over time, came to know and embrace the one true living God. When people began to embrace God, when they began to believe, when they began to trust in Him, civilization began to happen. Because God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of orderliness. And civilization happened as they began to know him. What's interesting is if we follow, again, history a little further, we see how that begins to break down. When When a nation or when nations call out on the name of the Lord, how they're blessed, but when they begin to pull back from the name of the Lord, when they begin to look to their own power, their own strength, how they begin to fall apart. Psalm 33, verse 12. Tells us, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And, and that's that's been seen time and time again. When a nation calls out to God, they are blessed. America is a prime example of this. A nation that was founded on godly principles. A nation that was founded calling out, crying out to God. And this nation has been the most blessed nation in the history of the world. No nation has ever come close to, to the wealth, the blessings, the, the, the power even and the authority that America has in the world today. But watch out. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 12 says, For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve God will perish, and the nations will be utterly ruined. I'm a little uncomfortable in America today, and I'm not going to be doing any, you know, America bashing. I'm a patriot. I love my country. But the further our country slips away from the Father, the further our country goes in denying godly principles, principles as simple as the Ten Commandments which which, you know recently were kicked out of of a courthouse as we push away and pull away and say no we are not going to be tied to these things we will find ourselves less and less blessed and America will end up like any other nation that one time believed but then stopped believing it will end up ruined and that's why you constantly hear especially in Christian circles we need to cry out as a nation before the Lord I am not as concerned about America per se as I am about individuals, as I am about people. And whether America stands or falls, honestly, it's kind of beside the point, because Jesus will stand. And I want to be found standing with him. So with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the table of nations is set. And now we begin to walk into it. Look at verse 2. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tiras. By the way, some great names for kids. Any of you if have having kids? All through Genesis 10. Some real good ones in here. Verse 3, the sons of Gomer... This is the original Gomer. Way. He had a TV show later on. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tadarmah. The sons of Jabin were Elisha and Tarshish and Kittim and Dodanim. And from these, the coastlands of nations were separated into their lands. Now pay attention to this. We're going to come back to it. Everyone according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. Just make a little note of the way that's phrased. We'll come back to that toward the end tonight. In these first few verses, we see the sons of Japheth and the sons of two of his grandsons. And remember, they primarily became Western and Eastern European. And let me point this out to you. Again, some of this information found in the Genesis record. Um, an excellent book. Gomer. Gomer is the father of the Germanic peoples. So those who have Germanic roots, descent from Germany, they, try, they tie all the way back to Gomer. Now if you look at a few of these other names And I'm not going to speak to every name tonight There's not time And some of them They're all interesting All fascinating I'm just going to point out some I think critical ones In our Bible study And in understanding scripture Three more that I want you to look at in verse 2 Are Magog Tubal And Meshach Magog, Magog Tubal and Meshach Now these names come up again In fact they come up more than once In scripture On down the line In prophecy and as they come up, these are the kinds of names you've probably heard the name Magog at some point. You're like, what does that mean? Who's Magog? And, and, and what's he have to do with anything? Listen closely to this. Interesting. The Magog, the people of Magog, became Scythians and later took on the name Russian. Magog is Russia. It is the people of Russia. Furthermore, oh, and this is interesting, the Great Wall of China, even today, Though we call it the Great Wall of China? The Chinese call it the Great Wall of Magog. Because back historically, when the wall was first built, it was built as a battlement against the people on the other side of the wall, Magog, who were Russia. But who at that time were called Magog. And so even today, in China, they will call the Great Wall the Great Wall of Magog. Because it was to hold out the people on the other side. So Magog is Russia. Tubal. Tubal today is known as Tubolsk. And that's also of Eastern Europe, also tied in with Russia. Meshach is another word for Moscow. So you have Russia, Tobolsk, Moscow, you've got the Eastern European bloc up there. And that's where they came from. These three nations come into play in a powerful way, in fact in a predicted invasion of Israel that will happen sometime around the rapture of the church. Now flipping your Bibles over to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel 38. Now, in this chapter, and we're going to read through, I'm going to point out just a couple of things. This is one we could spend a lot of time in, and, you know, we will. We'll eventually get to Ezekiel sometime next year. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but I want to read through this, and listen closely as the prophecy unfolds, and look for the people involved in this prophecy. Many of them are in the table of nations, and you'll understand it much better knowing who these people are. Again, Magog, Russia, Tubal, Tubolsk, and Meshach, Moscow. Listen closely as we read, starting in verse 1 of Ezekiel 38 powerful passage. And the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me, saying Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog the prince of Rosh Rosh is also another word for Russia Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So this is a prophecy against this people group. Listen close. Thus says the Lord God Behold, I am against you, O Gog prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal Folks, you don't want the Lord God against you. <laughs> Verse 4. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. And I will bring you about and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Let me stop right there and just make a, a comment. And this is Rick's opinion. Okay, this is not based on anything but just what I think. This prophecy that that we're going to read through here all has to do with the time at the very end, and it even says that in Ezekiel 38. This may happen prior to the rapture of the church. It's possible that it may happen just prior to it, or it may happen just after the church is taken out. Right now in my study, my personal leaning is that it's going to happen after, because I think some other things are going to happen too, which is indicated in the horses and the horsemen and all of them splendidly attired. I have a sense, and we just saw The Return of the King the other night, again, for the second time. Just an awesome movie. And as you watch the battles of of the the horsemen riding in and and the fighting and all that that goes on, I was sitting there watching that, and it struck me verses like this, because I had just read it that afternoon. All the horses and their horsemen. Was that just metaphorical for like armored tanks and trucks and all that? I don't think it is. Of course, again, this is my opinion, but I think when this battle that's described here happens... It may very well happen on horseback and hand-to-hand combat. Why? Because it's entirely possible by that time, because of nuclear exchange, that the battlements and armors and and vehicles and implements of war that we have right now will be rendered useless, and man may have to return to an earlier form of battling. But mark this, man will return to an earlier form of battling. Do you realize that in the history of the world there has never been a weapon made that has not been used? Ever. Ever in battle. And right now we sit on stockpiles of nuclear weapons that we say are for peace while other countries scramble to get a hold of them. There's never been a weapon made that has not been used in war. So, just pointing that out. So again, maybe that's just why I hope it happens after the rapture. Verse (laughs) 5. Verse 5 says, Persia, which Persia is Iran today, Persia, Ethiopia, and Put. Put is another name for Libya. So you've got Iran, Ethiopia, and Libya will be with them. With who? With Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. With the Eastern European countries. Russia. They will be coming down in a battlement. They will be joined by Iran, Ethiopia, and Libya. All of them with shield and helmet. Verse 6. Gomer, Germany, with all its troops. Beth to from the remote parts of the north, northern countries, with all its troops, many people with you. So here comes a pretty massive field army. Verse 7, be prepared, the Lord says, and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be summoned. Now listen to this, in the latter years you will come. An indication, again, of the end times. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Historically, Israel has been for centuries, up until now, had been a continual waste. We talked about that last week. How... Israel, literally, though it was a beautiful, lush, green environment, was destroyed. Emperor Hadrian of Rome came in and made sure of that. After finally kicking out the Jews, he had the land salted. All of Israel, dumped with salt everywhere. Well, why? What would that do? It would destroy the land. And so now, when we look at the Middle East, we see desert wastelands. We see a a place that, that seems desolate, a waste place. And here we see in Ezekiel again, all these people, Jews will have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel which had been a continual waste. But these people were brought out from the nations and they are living securely all of them. Another little hint here. Israel at this point when this great army is coming down upon them, Israel is in a place of security. They are not right now. Something's going to happen that will cause Israel to become secure. False security. But they will sense security. This may very well be that time In the end, where Israel has signed a peace treaty and senses their own security, thinks they're going to be fine. Reading on. He says, verse 9, God speaking, You will go up, and you will come out. Remember, he's still speaking to these armies from the north. You'll go up, you'll come like a storm, and you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. You think that last battle scene in The Lord of the Rings was impressive? This is more impressive. Verse 10, thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. Another sign of peace in Israel. Right now, what are the Israelis working very hard at building? A security fence. A fence that protects them from the Palestinian region from the terrorists that keep coming across. And it's a huge political problem. And the Israelis are saying, look, we've got to have something to protect ourselves. Not in this day. Not by now. The wall will be gone. This is now a place, in fact, read on, you'll go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest and live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates. Israel is going to think that they're totally protected. In fact, I'll put it to you this way. I think Israel's going to think Messiah has come. But Messiah will be someone other than who they think. And we'll see that in a few moments tonight. Verse 12. To capture spoil, to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited, and against the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired cattle and goods, who live, I love this, at the center of the world. You see, as far as God's concern, Israel, Jerusalem, sits at the center of the world. That's God's land. It, Jerusalem is God's city. It's the only city, scripturally, God has ever said, this city is mine. I claim this one. My name rests on this city. Jerusalem is mine. It belongs to me. And if you look at old maps of Jerusalem, perhaps you've seen some, old maps of the world, it's interesting that Jerusalem is marked right in the center. And the world kind of branches out from theirs. And and it's not arrogance, folks. It's God's city. Well, it goes on and says in verse 13, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish. You guys remember the name Tarshish? What story does that have to do with? Who went to Tarshish? Jonah did. Jonah was running from God and running from where he was supposed to be going in Assyria to Nineveh. You'll see the Ninevites here in a little while as well. Jonah was supposed to go there, and he starts heading off to Tarshish, opposite direction, someplace that he thought was safe. Well, Tarshish, Sheba, and Dedan, Saudi Arabia today. So as this mighty army is coming down toward Israel, they begin to flow through Saudi Arabia with all its villages, verse 13, and they'll say to you, Have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, and to capture great spoil? You might say to capture great oil. Because that's where they're headed. So they come flooding through. Verse 14. God speaking again. Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog. Who's Gog? He's the leader of Magog. Okay? It's an easy way to remember it. Thus says the Lord God: On that day, when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place, out of the remote parts of the north. Again, another symbol and another signal: Who it is and where they're coming from. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land. Interesting, God's saying, you think this is your plan? I'm going to bring you against my land. I'm going to motivate you. It's going to be my work behind the scenes that causes you to assemble your army and come down. Why, Lord? Listen. So that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O God. In the great massive arrogance of man, this army comes marching down thinking, we're going to finally wipe out and take Israel, that burn our saddle for all these years. And God's saying, no, you're going to glorify me. You and the evil intent of your heart are going to be seeking one thing, but I am going to be glorified, sanctified even, the Father says, through what's going on here. Because, folks, God is always lifted up. And it doesn't matter what we think we're doing or what we believe we're about. God is always lifted up. He is always the one ultimately glorified, and he will be here. Verse 17. Thus says the Lord God, Are you the one of whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them? It will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. And in my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, and all the creeping, thing that, cre- creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. You bet they will. <laughs> The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him on my mountains. Against who? Against those coming against the land of God, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him. I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire and brimstone. Verse 23, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself and make myself known in the sight of many nations and they will know that I am the Lord. And you thought you were just going to get Genesis chapter 10 tonight. I read that to you and flip back now to Genesis 10. I read that to you to get a sense of what's going on here historically, to tie together this genealogy in Genesis 10 that has ultimate impact at the very end of time. Why do you want to study things like genealogies? Because they apply to the days in which we live. Because they have to do with the people groups who are on the planet of Earth today. And let's look at a few more of them. Look at verse 6. So those are the sons of Japheth. We come now to the sons of Ham, who were Cush, and Mizraim and Put, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush were Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Rayama, and and Sabtika, And the sons of Rayama were Sheba and Dedan. Again, Sheba and Dedan, Saudi Arabia. Cush. Cush is Ethiopia. (laughs) Regions around the Nile. It's interesting. um, The sons of Ham, and, and we already said that Ham, his name meant black. And it's an indication of some character traits or some, some physical characteristics that Ham had. It's very likely that Ham was a very dark-skinned child when he was born. And we're going to talk about again, how does that fit into all the nations and people groups of today. But Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23, if you're taking those, you might just make a note of this. Jeremiah 13:23 references the skin color of those living in Ethiopia. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 14, and this I find really interesting, references their stature. And what do you mean stature? Do you mean they're just tall and people that the NBA would be interested in? What's, what's the deal here? Isaiah 45:14, talking about stature, I think he's talking about the people of Ethiopia, their stature in terms of civility, in terms of being a great people. Now again, when you say Ethiopia today, I mean, when I was a kid growing up and, and there was a lot of talk, a lot of emphasis and focus on the famine that was going on in Ethiopia, which, by the way, still continues. It's just not interesting news anymore. But during all those times, a lot of jokes were made about it, about you know Ethiopian food, what that would be, you know, and, and all that. And, and people looking at Ethiopia as really a backwater country, third world, we would call it. And yet the Bible indicates that Ethiopia at a time may contain people of stature. Great people. Well, going on, Put, I said before, is Libya, and Sheba and Dedan, Saudi Arabia, as we just read in Ezekiel 38. And now look at Canaan. I want you to skip some verses. We'll come back. But look in verse 15 of Genesis 10. A little bit at Canaan. And it's very important here, especially with regards to the history of the Jews. Canaan, verse 15, became the father of Sidon, his firstborn. And Heth? And the Jebusite and the Amorite and the Girgashite and the Hivite and the Archite and the Sinite. The Sinite, by the way, the Sinitic people would be Asian, Japanese, Chinese, and they went east. Okay? <laughs> I want to point that out just <laughs> for you. On Sinai. There you go. And so uh, the Arbadite and the Zemurites and the Hamathites and afterwards the families of the Canaanite, were spread abroad. And it tells us, verse 19, the territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon, as you go towards Gerar, as far as Gaza, a name still used today, as you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha And, uh,. Yeah, verse 20 says, And these are the sons of Ham, again, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands and by their nations. Now, why do you think the author of this book, of Genesis, Moses, I believe, why do you think he specifically gives a listing of the people of Canaan here and a specific mention of the people of Canaan in the curse that we read last week in chapter 9? What would Moses' interest be in the people of Canaan? it's really not a hard question it's kind of an obvious one what was going on? where was Moses headed? well they were headed to Canaan Canaan's land was the promised land and so in writing this the first people who would read the Torah the first five books of the Bible the first people who received that God gave it to Moses Moses gave it to the Israelites now what were the Israelites doing right at that point in history? they were headed to a land that belonged to someone else They thought, or they were thinking. Actually, the Israelites knew it belonged to them going all the way back prior to Abraham. But they were headed to Canaan's land and they were called upon by God to do something difficult and best. The Israelites were called upon by God to go to Canaan's land and wipe out the Canaanite. Destroy them. Basically, rip them asunder. Look back at chapter 9 and verse 25. Remember Noah, last week he awoke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him and so he said, curse be Ham for doing this. Ham, you're an idiot, I can't believe this and I put a curse on you. Oh, no, he doesn't say that. He says, curse be Canaan. Because Noah wakes up and immediately enters into a prophecy against Canaan. Why? We said last week, God knew at that point in history. Remember, God's not bound by time like we are. It's all happening at the same time for him. He sees it all at once. God is the great I am, ever-present. And so at the same time that Ham is hamming around and doing wrong things here, God is watching this and he's watching over here a people of Canaan who would be some of the most horrific and rebellious people on the planet. And in the history of the world, child sacrifices, sexual aberrations, pagan pollution. I mean, it was horrible things that the people of Canaan were all involved in. So all the way back with Noah, a prophetic curse is pronounced on Canaan. And now, in in chapter 10, we see again the Canaanite mention and all those people and who they are. So the Jewish people received the Ten Commandments. Noah or Moses brings it down the mountain, they begin to read the Ten Commandments and the law, they read through Genesis, they hear that history. And as they listen to all that had happened and all that was being written, they realize that God is blessing them and basically assigning them the task. That this was something that was determined by God long before you started heading back to the to Canaan's land, Israelites. I think it was. It, it had to be incredibly affirming to the Israelites to know this is something that was in motion long before we came along. God sent the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites, and we'll see this powerfully when we get to the book of Joshua, again, in just, you know, a short time. Now, back up a bit and go to verse 8, because we come to an infamous individual, a rebel with a cause, a man named Nimrod when I was a kid Nimrod was a fun name I always called my brother Nimrod you know and it just ticked him off and I didn't realize what I was talking about and what I was saying we kind of almost laughed like, like you all just did when you hear the name Nimrod you think okay that's a name for an idiot well this guy was no idiot listen to him listen to his life now Cush verse 8 became the father of Nimrod He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. By the way, anyone know where Babel would be today? Babylonia. <laughs> <laughs> where would Babylon be today? Iraq. 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 Babylon is, is centered in Iraq. As a matter of fact, prior to his downfall, Saddam Hussein poured literally billions of dollars into the rebuilding of Babylon, including plans drawn up ready to rebuild the Tower of Babel. Amazing. Trying to draw people in, thinking tourism, tax dollars, but Babylon is already being rebuilt. I don't know where it's at right now. Things are kind of on hold in Iraq. But reading on, it says, The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad and Chaldeh, in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went forth into Assyria, and built Nineveh. And Rehoboathir, and Kala and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala. That is a great city. And Mizraim became the father of Ludim and Ananim, and Lehibim and Naphtuhim, and Patrasim, and Tasluhim, from which came the Philistines, and Tathdorim. I believe Taptorim is something you give your children when they're sick. But going back, Nimrod. Here's this man Nimrod. And we only get a couple of verses on him, but you need to realize how infamous this man truly was. Some things to know about Nimrod. Verse 9 tells us that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Better translation for that would be he was a mighty hunter in the face of the Lord, or against the Lord. Nimrod was one who set himself against God and he was a powerful hunter well, what did Nimrod hunt? he hunted souls <laughs> he hunted human beings and called them to follow him to turn against God Nimrod was a powerful man and his name by the way means we will we'll rebel we will rebel now in Genesis 11 as we're going we're to look closely at that Sunday morning um, and for those of you who don't come on Sunday morning it'll be taped and I'll, I'll, I'll make that uh, available for you but the name Nimrod again means rebel but in Genesis 11 Nimrod builds a city around a tower and the tower is called Bab-el the city Babylon look at Genesis 11 verse 1 real quickly Genesis 11:1 this is Nimrod's doing he is the founder of Babel the the basically the The man in charge, the head Hansha, the big cheese of the building of this tower. Now the whole earth, verse 1, used the same language and the same words. A little interesting side note on that. It's thought by many, many scholars, even non-biblical people, non-Christians, non-Jewish people, that that same language that was used was in fact Hebrew. That Hebrew was the original language of humanity, of people, up until the Tower of Babel. But that's the language that was spoken. That's fascinating. Verse 2. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. (laughs) Otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. What had God told Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth to do when they came off the ark. Be fruitful and multiply and spread out across the face of the earth. But Nimrod now leads the people and says, hey, let's stick together. Let's hang together. Together we can accomplish mighty things. Together we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be spread out. And verse 5 tells us the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now we're going to get, again, more into that story later on, or on Sunday morning. But the Tower of Babel was built to be a ziggurat, a tower literally for studying the astrological signs of the Zodiac. It was the first star search, uh, really. Um, The name Babel originally meant gate of God, Bab-el. Bab meaning gate, el, the, the word for God. So it originally meant the gate of God, but God changed the name to confusion. And even today we use that phrase Babel. a babbling idiot? What are you talking about? Stop babbling and be clear with me. No? It's a word that means confusion. So Babylon, Babel originally meant the gate of God. Babylon means heaven's gate. You may remember back in the early 90s, the heaven's gate cult that committed a mass suicide in hoping to be caught up in their tennis shoes and black robes. Weird stuff. Babylon meant heaven's gate. So you could say that Nimrod was literally the founder of confusion at heaven's gate. What Nimrod does is very interesting, though, as relates to Israel. Looking back at chapter 10, Nimrod's kingdoms began at Babel in the land of Shinar, again present-day Iraq. But look again at verse 11. He goes on from, from founding Babel. If that wasn't enough, this magnificent city, Nimrod goes on into Assyria, who were arch enemies, by the way, always as were the Babylonians of Israel, and he builds Nineveh, and in Nineveh, ugly things were happening. Now, this one man single-handedly built two major people groups or led two major people groups who would eventually be the downfall of Israel. There's a connection here. 722 BC, the atrocious Assyrians invaded and captured the ten northern tribes of Israel. They never came back. In 605 B.C., the brutal Babylonians invaded and captured Judah in the south. And by 586, they finally completely decimated Jerusalem. They burned down the temple, the first temple, burned it to the ground, and carried all the people off into captivity. Both of these two major players, Assyria and Babylon, were founded by Father Nimrod and were part of a diabolical plot to exterminate the Jews and mess up God's perfect plan of salvation. Now, hear me on this just for a moment, because it's important, even as it relates to our lives today. Satan cannot create, Satan can only imitate. Anything that you see going on in the world that seems to be good but has an undercurrent of evil is an imitation. That's what he does. He imitates the things of God. He comes in and he finds something, and I'll give you an example. Love and marriage, a thing created by God, man and woman put together in a beautiful relationship. And Satan comes along and goes, yeah, but if you're just living together, it's still beautiful. He can't create what God already has, but he can imitate it, and he can make it look so good. Love versus lust. Love from the Father, lust from Satan. He cannot create, he can only imitate. Now, what does that have to do with Nimrod? I've got to share a couple things with you. And some of you who studied with me um, months ago through Revelation and some other things, you've heard this, but there are many people who haven't. And they need to hear this story, and I want us all on the same page. Nimrod married historically an infamous character. Another infamous person, a woman by the name of Semiramis. Who would be with her husband? The first they, they would together found the first pagan religion on the planet, and that religion was the Babylonian mystery religion. <laughs> she would go on to call herself the Queen of Heaven. This woman, Semiramis. Well, Nimrod and Semiramis lived together for a time until Nimrod, Nimrod himself was killed by a wild boar. Now, while he was off away and killed by this boar, Semiramis and all of Nimrod's people mourned. They denied themselves pleasure in fasting for 40 days, which kind of sounds familiar. In some religions, there's a 40 day period of denial and fasting, but today it's called Lent. It traces all the way back to this practice right here. Suddenly, Semiramis discovered that she was pregnant. Amazing. Miraculous. Nimrod was dead. Semiramis is now pregnant. And she proclaimed not only that this pregnancy was miraculous, but that Nimrod himself, as the father, was alive inside the child. So Semiramis began to claim, he's in me. The father is the child in me. It goes on. This happened in the springtime. And so Semiramis had an egg fashioned from gold and it was called the golden egg of Astarte and those around her in celebration of this miraculous pregnancy colored eggs worship rabbits as a sign of fertility and called the celebration Ishtar. Easter. Nine months later Semiramis gave birth to a son she called Tammuz, a so-called miraculous birth. Now to celebrate this miraculous birth where the father became the son hang on because there's more little Tammuz as a child, died suddenly. Tammuz was born nine months after the spring, in the winter time. He died suddenly in the dead of winter, no pun intended, and three days later, according to Simiramis' story, Tammuz came back from the dead, three days after his death, this miracle child. In celebration, those of Babylonian paganism put the log in the fire, the the word actually the child log, in the Chaldean language, Babylonian language, the word is Yule. So they put the Yule log in the fire and they brought evergreen trees inside to celebrate the return of Tammuz from the dead. Am I ruining anybody's holidays for the next year? (laughs) Someone just made all this up, right? The answer is yes and no. It is made up It's a lie, but it's rooted in the paganistic history of Babylon. And even the Bible itself verifies the validity of these stories. Not that they are truth, but that they were stories that were told. Really. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 3. (coughs) Jeremiah 10, verse 3. You may want to go ahead and look these up. I'll read them to you. Just so you know, they're right here. Jeremiah 10, verse 3 tells us, for the customs of the peoples are futile. For one cuts a tree down from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. And they decorate it with silver and gold. And they fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. This was the celebration of Saturnalia, which was a celebration of the miraculous birth of Tammuz. And what's going on here in Jeremiah is God for Jeremiah is saying, my people are getting all messed up here. They're following Babylonian paganism. They're running away from the truth that I've given them and they're falling after these pagan holidays. And he describes it right there in Jeremiah ten three and 4. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14. There's just one verse. You might want to just note it. Let me read it to you. It tells us, Ezekiel says, So he brought me to the door at the north gate of the Lord's house, the temple. He brings me to the door of the temple and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Why were they weeping for Tammuz? Because it, was because it was part of that pagan ritual. It was part of the sadness of Tammuz' death and then the celebration of his resurrection three days later. And even the Jewish calendar, by the way, bears a month by the name of Tammuz. If you look on the 12-month Jewish calendar today, one of those months is the month of Tammuz. Why is that? Because the Jewish calendar was born out of their captivity in Babylon. When they came from Babylon, some of those names carried over on into Jewish custom and culture. And so even the name Tammuz of this story is in the Jewish calendar. Now let me be clear again about all of this story. None of it is true. It was a story that was truly told, but it was a lie. And yet as we listen to it, it's very disturbing. Because we say, hang on a second. This happened long before the birth of Christ long before the true miraculous birth that we study and read about and believe in in the Bible. This happened way before that or at least it was claimed to have happened. This was a problem in Old Testament history long before the Jews even realized what was going to happen in the miraculous birth of Christ and and the resurrection of Christ after three days. It's so similar. How can this possibly be? Satan cannot create anything but he can imitate he can't create but he can imitate. And listen to this, counterfeits only exist in juxtaposition to the truth. You understand what I mean? That a counterfeit can only exist if there is something true that it is counterfeit of. You'll never see a $17 bill counterfeited. Because there's no such thing as $17 bills. You will see counterfeits or you may not see, it, but there are counterfeits of $10 bills, $100 bills, because there are truly $100 bills and $10 bills. So it is in this story, this counterfeit story, Why? Because there is a true story in the story of Jesus. Yeah, but I I still don't understand. How can this be? Let me give you a little more on this. Through various cultures, this story has found its way and has continued to be propagated. In fact, in the Roman culture, the mother and child symbols of Semiramis and Tammuz are called Venus and Cupid. Happy Valentine's Day. In Greek culture... They're called Eris and Aphrodite. In Egyptian culture, they're called Isis and Horus. And even Asian cultures have a mother-child mystery religion, a pagan religion, embedded in them as well. This goes back a long time. And even in the Old Testament, they're called Ashtaroth and Baal. You may have read about them in the Old Testament. It is frightening how close this runs to the gospel. And you hear this, and and again we say, how can this be? And and when first time I saw these verses, the Ezekiel verse and the Jeremiah verse, referring to this story, I thought, oh no. Even the Bible recognizes that this story existed prior to the story of Jesus. How can this all work? You go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God said, to Satan, to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You see, when God pronounced the gospel, her seed, the seed of woman, and those of you who know the proto-evangelicum first gospel, that's the first time that there was an indication that there was going to be a miraculous birth. God was saying, I am going to crush the serpent's head through the miraculous birth of a child. Satan was the one God was talking to. He heard it. He listened. And Satan's plan from day one has been, what can I do to destroy God's plan? How can I mess it up? If I destroy the Jews, Nimrod building Babel and Nineveh and Assyria, if I can bring a mighty army and wipe out the Jewish people, well then God's prophetic plan for the Jews gets destroyed and and it can't work. So the Jews have been the most persecuted people of all history. If I can undermine the story with a counterfeit story so that even people like us sitting in here tonight reading and hearing about Nimrod and Semiramis and Tammuz and we start to get uncomfortable and sweat a little bit and think, man, what if we're the wrong ones? And that's the true story. That's exactly what Satan wants to do, to undermine, to plant a seed of doubt in our minds about the true seed that God would plant in Mary in Jesus Christ this Nimrod is a rebel who set himself against the Lord who founded the nations that would ultimately come very near destroying all of Israel he was husband to the high priestess of the Babylonian pagan religion and he is an early picture of Satan's greatest counterfeit who is yet to come on the scene, another person by the name of Antichrist now Antichrist by the way will not come on the scene with a big A.C. on his shirt you know, and a, and a red cape. He's not going to pronounce, Hey, I'm Antichrist and I'm here to really mess things up. He's not going to have little horns and a tail. Antichrist is going to come on the scene as a man of peace. He will, and I don't have time to get fully into it tonight, but the scriptures back this up, and if you'd like to look at it, talk to me afterwards, or we can, we can study it another time. But he will come on the scene as one who will call for peace. And Israel and the Muslims, the Arab peoples, will both buy into it because both are waiting for a Messiah. Israel is still looking for a Messiah, one who will come and build the temple again. The Muslims are looking for a man of peace who is supposed to precede the return of Muhammad. And so here along comes this man of peace. And you know what he's going to do? Daniel chapter 9 tells us clearly he's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel. And I believe fully that that peace treaty is going to involve the rebuilding of the temple. And he's going to find a way somehow for the Arabs and, and the Israelis to live side by side in peace. Which I think then takes us to Ezekiel chapter 38 and the story we just heard about them living, thinking they're in total peace because this man of peace is on the world scene. He's a world ruler. People are going to follow him. They're going to love him. By the way, this is just a little side note. And please don't be angry with me if you have different political views. But I don't know if you heard the name that was, that was put up as a possible replacement um, in the United Nations, for the next leader of the United Nations, Bill Clinton. Oh yeah. Just wanted to throw that out there. It may not have anything to do with what we're talking about. So Antichrist comes on the scene. <laughs> <laughs> Stay with me now. Stay with me. Antichrist's names are various and sundry. He is called in the Bible, and you might want to jot these down if, if you're taking notes again. He's called the King of Babylon. Antichrist is in Isaiah 14, verse 4. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 8, and chapter 8, verse 9, and I'm sorry to go so quickly here, but got to get through this. In Daniel, he's called Little Horn. It's called Little Horn. Interesting name. There's a whole story beyond, behind that. In Daniel chapter 9 verse 26, he is called the Prince who is to come." As a matter of fact, Daniel chapter 9 verse 26 tells us that Jerusalem would be destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. Well, Rome destroyed Israel in AD70. So we know that the prince of the people, who, the people of the prince who is to come, that prince will have Roman descent, European descent. That's something that we can know about Antichrist. He's also called in Second Thessalonians chapter two verses three and through eight. He's called the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, he's called the Antichrist. In Revelation 13, verse 1, he is called the beast from the sea, and his names are on and on and on in Scripture. Bottom line, Antichrist is counterfeit to the real thing. He is the one who, like Nimrod, sets himself against the face of God anti, by the way, in the phrase antichrist, what it implies is not only one who is against, anti but one who seeks to take the place of and that's what antichrist will attempt to do driven by Satan himself this is going to be really quick, so again, if you're writing things down write this very fast, but I can make this available to you if you'd like, just a quick contrast between Jesus Christ and antichrist, and here I'm going to give you 14 things Contrasting the two. We just go back and forth. You may just want to listen again. I can make this available later. This is from a book called Dispensational Truth by Larkin. Dispensational Truth. And here are 14 contrasts between Jesus Christ and Antichrist. Number one, Jesus descended from above, John 6.38. Antichrist will ascend from the pit, Revelation 11.7 tells us. Jesus came in his Father's name, John chapter 5 verse 43. Antichrist will come in his own name. Also John chapter 5 verse 43. Jesus taught that himself. Jesus came to do his father's will. John chapter 6 verse 38. Antichrist will come to do his own will. Daniel 11:36 tells us. Jesus humbled himself. Philippians 2 verse 8. Remember humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. Well Antichrist will 2 Thessalonians 2:4 2, tells us will exalt himself. You will seek and seek a high and mighty place. Jesus in number five, Jesus was despised, Isaiah 53 verse three and Luke 23:18. Jesus was despised, but Antichrist will be admired. Revelation 13 verses three and four. Jesus came to save Luke 19:10. Antichrist will come to destroy Daniel 8:24. Jesus is the Good Shepherd, John chapter 10 verses 1 through 15. Antichrist is the Idol or Evil Shepherd, in Zechariah 11:16 through 17. Jesus is the True Vine, John 15:1. Antichrist is the Vine of the Earth, Revelation 14:18. Jesus is the Truth, John 14:6. Antichrist is the Lie, Second 2 Thessalonians 2:11. 2, Jesus is the Holy One, John 14, 6. Antichrist is the lawless one. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8 tells us. Number 11. Jesus is the man of sorrows, from Isaiah 53, verse 3. By the way, i got to tell you this. Amazing. Remember how we've talked about the equidistant letter sequencing, the Bible codes? This is mind-boggling to see it, but embedded... In Isaiah 53, which is the most graphic picture of the crucifixion of Messiah anywhere in the Bible, embedded within that teaching are over 40 names of people who were all present at the crucifixion. And we'll go, we'll go over that sometime and take a look at it, but it's, it's stunning to see. And, and it's so specific, by the way, that we know based on Scripture there were three Marys at the cross, and the name Mary shows up three times in Isaiah 53 embedded behind the words. What book is that? it is you can get it well can you get it You're decided, you just got it didn't you it hasn't come yet but it's also in that uh, it's in the little one it's yeah is 53 is. okay check out a book called Hidden Treasures right oh, nice. by Chuck Missler that's probably the best one. There's a, a big 500-page volume that's, that's pretty heady reading, and I'll, I'll give you that name, too. Chuck Missler writes the book, Hidden Treasures, where he goes in and he points out, and we're not talking about the spurious out-there kind of weird Bible codes that you may have been hearing about. We're talking about actual scientifically verifiable codes that have been shown to be true. And he talks about that in Hidden Treasures by Chuck Missler. And you can go to khouse.org, khouse.org, online, and you can buy it there. Did you buy it? It's like six bucks and they only charge you for shipping. Yeah. And it's a real small volume. It's probably 100 pages, maybe 80 to 100 pages. And a great little resource for blowing the minds of, of your non-Christian friends. Well, it's, it's fun. Let me go on. Sorry, I stalled there a little bit. Jesus is the man of sorrows, Isaiah 53, 3. Antichrist is the man of sin, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Jesus is the son of God, Luke 1, 35. Antichrist is the son of destruction, 2 Thessalonians 2:3 Jesus is the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy 3:16 tells us he is God revealed in the flesh, the mystery of godliness. Antichrist is the mystery of lawlessness for he is Satan revealed in the flesh or he will become completely Satan indwelt. And that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 7. And finally number 14, Jesus will be exalted. Philippians 2:9, which is great to know, antichrist will be cast down to hell. Isaiah 14 14 and 15 and Revelation 19 and 20 tell us clearly. Antichrist is Satan's counterfeit to Jesus Christ. How do we get from Nimrod in chapter 10 to Antichrist? Because Nimrod is one of these types in the Old Testament, a picture of one who is to come. Uh, Nimrod is a picture of Antichrist, the way he sets himself against God, the way he creates and founds nations that go against Israel. That is Antichrist's whole purpose. And, folks, People are already lining up to buy into this greatest of all lies, big time. The need for security in our world, there, there's so much going on in the world space today that is leading people to a point of wanting to believe in one leader, a man of peace, who will bring peace to the world. Good news is that Antichrist will not be revealed until the church is taken up, and Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about that. And I'd I read it tonight, but there's more I want to get to. So if you want to look at that, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the first 10 verses, talk about the literally the rapture of the church and when Antichrist will come on the scene. And what Paul reveals to the people in Thessalonica is he said, Hey, listen, don't worry, because you're going to be long gone before Antichrist comes on the scene. Don't worry. They were afraid that maybe they had missed the rapture. And so they had sent letters to Paul, and some people were stirring up some rumors about that. And Paul writes back, Hey, no, no, that hasn't happened yet. Because what will happen is you're going to be pulled out before the man of lawlessness comes on the scene. Again, it's a great study you might want to do. Back to Genesis chapter 10 now. That's Nimrod. Verse 21. Now we move on to the sons of Shem, and it's not as long as as all that. It was the biggest section there. But verse 21 tells us, Genesis chapter 10, that also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber... Eber, Eber as in Hebrews, the Hebrews. So Eber is where the, the, the name Hebrews comes from. And the older brother of Japheth, uh, Shem was the older brother of Japheth, and children were born to him. Verse 22, the sons of Shem were Elam, and Asher, and Arphexad, and Lud. That's a great name. Lud? And Aram? Verse 23, the sons of Aram were Uz, and Hul and Gether, and Mash. Arpexa became the father of Sheila, and Sheila became the father of Eber. And two sons were born to Eber. The name of one was Peleg. Now this is interesting, for in his day, or in his days, the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan became the father of Almadad and Shelaf and Hazam, Hazarmapheth and Jerud and Hadorim And all these names that I can't pronounce, you know I'm probably am not going to talk about. Um, and Hazel and Dekla and Obol and yeah, Interesting. Sheba and Ophir and Havilah and Jobab. Jobab, I love that. All these were the sons of Joktan verse 30 now their settlement extended from Misha as you go towards Sephar oh by the way <laughs> little side note you heard of the Sephardic Jews and the Ashkenazi Jews okay, Ashkenaz were again the people who were settled in Germany they're, they're related if you look back to Gomer the Germanic peoples and so the Ashkenazi Jews were Jews who after dispersion settled in the Ashkenaz region over in Germany. The Sephardic Jews are the people the Jews after being dispersed who settled in this region called Sephar, the hill country of the east which is Spain and Portugal and areas in that direction. And what's very interesting is though these are both Jewish peoples the Ashkenazi Kenazi Jews and the Sephardic Jews are culturally very different. They have a lot of just the way they dress the way they act the, the customs that they keep very different customs although they are both Jews just a little side note before you it actually still causes, but not so much anymore but for the first 30 years of Israel existed that conflict uh, the huge problem between those the two the when they came from Europe uh, after, they, after the Holocaust they were the doctors the lawyers the political leaders they ran the country the other people were the people of the land typically and there was a tremendous amount of uh, almost racism between the two groups as they didn't the mix wow. one group's majority represented the minority that had all the power and control. it caused problems. Probably until about twenty years ago. When through intermarriage and all the of disappearance. it, Well still disappears. It's another huge problem even here in the twentieth century. Well and that you know that's amazing because the fact that they've they come together again through intermarriages, but also again because of they have to <laughs> they are surrounded by a sea of hatred and a people completely against them so they have but it's fascinating that even among the Jews who, who and as uh, persecuted as they've been you think well this is a people group that's got to have banded together no there's there's division there there's division among men there's racism all over the world and I'll get to that in just half a second one thing I want to make note about real quickly is Peleg interesting that the earth was divided in Peleg day now does that mean divided does that talk about the story of Babel that all of the people were divided and spread out because of the language thing? I don't think so. Let me tell you why. Peleg, his name means earthquake. Okay? Which is another great name. You want to name a kid earthquake? I mean, some children probably should be named earthquake after a while, you know, the way they run around. But Peleg's name meant earthquake. And then when it says, for in his days the earth was divided, the word earth there is a very specific word that never refers to peoples on the earth, but only refers to the land. It's the word Eretz. Now some of you may have heard Israel referred to as Eretz Israel, land of Israel. Now Eretz is a word that we use like earth. When we say earth, we're not talking about people. We'll say the people of the earth, or we'll say the earthlings. But earth itself, when we say earth, we know we're talking about the planet. So here in this verse, what you're getting is Peleg, for in his days, the earth, good translation, the earth was divided, not the peoples of the earth, the earth itself was divided. And this lends some credibility to some of the uh, theories such as the continental drift. For even today, you take the continents and you can almost piece them back together. If you were to cut them out in puzzle pieces and, and try to replace them, you... You could come close to doing that. There is indication, and we even know from the biblical record, that the earth was not divided up in continents like it is today. Peleg was around in the days when the earth was divided. Well, when, when did that happen? Well, it happened after the flood. Remember, following the flood, prior to the flood, the earth was in a great stasis you know, surrounded by that water canopy and and tropical perfect environment all the way around the earth. Losing the water canopy, the earth became a very rambunctious place to live. And things began to happen. And as the waters receded, there there were massive glaciers that formed. And all of this going on could easily have caused this earthquake like experiences throughout Earth that began the division of the earth and I think it's fascinating again here comes the Bible comes running along and steps out ahead of science and makes a statement like in Peleg's day the earth was divided now this is the last thing I want to mention I I shared last week and on Sunday too that there's something fascinating to me about scripture and it's the fact that scripture the Bible God's word never never deals with the issue of race or racism the bible not in one single place in scripture does it talk about the different races now look back over chapter ten at a couple of different spots and listen again I pointed this out earlier to to make a check mark in your mind verse five tells us from these the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language according to their families into their nations the word race is not there if you skip on down and look at verse twenty tells us these are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, and by their nations. Again, race is not there. And you go to verse 31. These are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, and according to their nations, and not according to race. So what's the deal today? Why do we have racism? Why do we have... How, where did all these different races come from? Well, part of that is we talked about... Part of that came directly from the different characteristics, physical characteristics among peoples. Race is a man-made concept. It is not and never was a biblical concept. Now, this was a surprise to me. I would have assumed, well, of course, yeah, the, the nations and tongues and races of the earth. You will not find the word race in the Bible anywhere. Well, just so happens, Rick, that in my New American Standard Version Bible, it's your teaching out of. I found the word race related to people a couple of different places. Yeah, I found that in my New American, in my New International Version as well. Well, you won't find it in the King James Version. Now, I'm not saying that the King James Version is right and these other versions are wrong, but you need to understand something. It's, it's very interesting. Racism, the concept of race, is based in evolution. It's based on evolutionary thinking. Again, Morris in the Genesis Record says the modern concept of race is based on evolutionary thinking. To the evolutionist, and this is This is vastly important. To the evolutionist, race is a subspecies in the process of evolving to new and higher species. And this idea is the basis of modern racism. Think about it. What Darwin said is that everything is evolving. And social evolutionists of the time began to come along with Darwin and say, Yeah, yeah, that's right. And there are certain peoples in the human family that are lower on the evolutionary scale than there are others. In fact, a very infamous man by the name of Hitler bought into that hook, line, and sinker. Absolutely believed in the possibility of a highly evolved super race, an Aryan nation. And that the Jews, according to Hitler, oh, they were, they were going to mess the whole thing up. We don't want any interbreeding. We don't want their, their genes and their characteristics to get in with the Aryan nation because they'll destroy it all. They'll mess it up. So we need to destroy the Jews. Satan very hard at work. What what amazes me is that in our schools today, two completely contrary concepts are taught. Our students, our kids are taught anti-racism, which is good, but they're also taught pro-evolution. And the two, evolution is the cause of the idea of race. Do you realize that prior to 200 years ago, people didn't talk in terms of race? Oh, there were different colors and shades and skins in the world, but racism as a concept grows directly out of evolution. And out of the theory of evolution and the teaching of evolution, and it led to Hitler's Holocaust as well. Now, what about the word "race" being in the Bible? Well, listen closely. Ezra chapter nine, verse two. A couple of quick verses here. Ezra nine two, and I'm just giving you the New American Standard version of this. Tells us the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the land. That word "race" that's translated "race" is the word "zera" in Hebrew. We've heard it before. It means seed not race. Seed. It should say the Holy Seed has intermingled. And this is why it's important to, to get in there and, and really understand what the Bible's saying. Go back to original language. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 6 says, A mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod. Well the word race does not even appear. The word mongrel, mamzer, is the word there. So race is inserted. Now they're trying to express something, explain something, in this particular translation but what they're doing is they're adding to scripture and scripture does not use the word race. Mark chapter 7 verse 26 you may remember that Jesus had a conversation with a woman from Syrophoenicia the Syrophoenician woman and in the New American Standard Version again it says the woman was of the Syrophoenician race. The word there is Syrophoenicia which is Syrophoenician. The word race, again, not even in there in the original language. Acts chapter 7, verse 19. Stephen is speaking to the Jewish Sanhedrin, and he says, talking about Pharaoh, he says, it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race. Well, the Jewish people have never been a race. They've been a nation, a people, but not a race. And that word right there is the word genos, where we get our word genealogy. It means kin. It means family. It does not mean race. James chapter seven verse or chapter three verse seven. James is writing it says, For every species of birds and beasts, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. The word there is anthropos, has been tamed by mankind, not by a human race. And probably the most dramatic one is first Peter chapter two, verse nine. You may even have this memorized, but you are a chosen race. You're a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And the word there translated race is a combination of chosen race. Together is the word electos. You're the elect. You're the chosen ones. You are the ones, folks, I'm talking to you tonight. You're the ones who have been chosen by God. And that word electos implies... Favorites. I like that. I kind of like being God's chosen favorite. You know, people come along and they say, Well, who's God's favorite? And I say, I am. <laughs> it's me. But what's great is, so are you. That every single one of us in the, in the family of God are his favorite. Individually, collectively, the electos, his favorites. Now, this word race does not have a companion word in the Bible, in the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek languages. And the only Bible that reflects that is the King James Version. Now, Rick, are you trying to get us into the King James Bible? No, but I will tell you this. It's interesting that the King James Version is the only one that doesn't have the word race. All the new translations do. Why is that? Because when the King James was written in 1611, The word race did not exist and was not used in that way at all. It wasn't until the 1800s when Darwin came along and the theory of evolution propagated the theory and the idea of race. Race is not a biblical term. There is only one use of the word race in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 9.24 tells us, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Philippians 3.13 tells us, forgetting what lies be- behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How do I do that? How do I race forward to the Father's call? How do I press on to that goal? Man, when I was in a freshman and sophomore in high school, I ran trash. And I loved to run, but I hated the meats loved to run loved the workout hated the meets because I would get to the track meets and literally would get sick to the point of throwing up before every race because I was so high strung I was like a you know the pistol went out and I was just out of there running you know as fast as I can to get around the track and get to the bathroom so I could throw up you know run fast but I hated those meets there was so much tension and pressure and and the the push to win you've got to win you've got to perform and it was so hard man I loved the workouts it was great my friends and I especially when the coach said Just run through Mission Viejo, the town where I grew up. Come back in an hour and a half, two hours, just go run. And we would go out and we would just hit the highway. And we'd run and the sky would be blue and the wind in my face. And I loved the workouts, but I hated the meets. Why? Because for me, running was a pleasure. It was a joy. It was fun. I got into track because running was so much fun. But after a while, the meets just made it hard. It wasn't fun anymore. I had to perform. I had to do well. I had to do certain things. Folks, the race that's talked about in Scripture is a race for joy. It is a race in joy. It is a race of joy. How do you know that? Listen to this final verse. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let's run the race with the endurance. Let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? How? fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of the faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God as we finish tonight let me just say this run hard run fast but run for joy run for the pleasure of the spirit run for the joy of the crown which is set before you let's pray Father thank you for Again, the revelation of things. The the clarity of understanding in Scripture. For taking us several different places tonight, straight out of this genealogy. Maybe, Father, a, a chapter that many of us would have just skipped over in the past, for all the bizarre names and for the lack of understanding. God, may we understand enough now to know that there are counterfeits out there that there are attempts in this world by Satan himself to distract, to discourage, to make life hard, to make the race difficult, to introduce such concepts as racism into our world and hatred between peoples where the reality is we all do have a single ancestry going back. Father, for all of that we see in this chapter the light, the hope of Israel, we see that hope just continuing forward. And I pray, Lord, that as we walk out of here tonight, we again wouldn't just do so with knowledge, but with a passion for following you. A passion, Lord, for staying awake at the top of the mast, for keeping the lookout clear and our eyes open. A passion, Father, to run. To run with the endurance that your spirit gives us. With, to, to fly, to mount up, as you say, with wings as of eagles. And to enjoy the journey. And to experience that, that pleasure of your spirit flowing through us. God, what a wonderful word your word truly is. Thank you, Father, for giving it to us tonight. We pray together in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.